What a privilege to come and open up God's Word together. What a wonderful weekend. So great to be able to close our time together uh, by turning once more to this beautiful topic of zeal. If you haven't guessed, this whole weekend is, is a meditation on a theme. Uh, we're not introducing anything new to us, but we're trying to stir our affections together for more of Christ. Uh, Riley did this wonderful job calling us to the single-minded focus on the Lord Jesus. Mark, then last night, looking at the object of our zeal. And tonight, I want to look at the destination, where we're headed, and, and to try and stir our affections for the Lord Jesus. So I'm going to open up God's Word, and then I'm going to ask for what we most need this morning, which is help from Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Philippians chapter 3, and I'm going to read from verse 7. This is the living, breathing Word of God to us this morning, churches. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. This is the Word of God to us. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction their God is their belly and their glory and their shame with minds set on earthly things. But 
our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before your throne this morning and we thank you that zeal is not an accomplishment, but that it is a miracle. Lord God, we come before your throne and we ask in your grace, grant us many, many, many miracles this morning. Lord, we have no right to ask this of you, but that we come in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we pray. Amen. 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 Well, friends, have you ever found yourself flicking through Instagram and feeling like your life just isn't that great? Your friends are skiing in Queenstown, New Zealand, hosting a lavish dinner at a fancy inner city restaurant. Looks so good. Showing off their newly renovated kitchen in a beautiful, nice neighborhood. Enjoying that summer European vacation, swimming at some Greek island. The first day at the office, death shot of Harbour Views, new corporate job. Family celebration, Nan's 95th, and everyone just looks so happy. And you sit at home in your PJs. That oversized t-shirt from your old work. It's cold and dark. You're in a rental with bad insulation. Electricity prices are too high at the moment. Holding an inst- a cup of instant coffee because you're on little sleep and you're desperate and scrolling through your phone and thinking to yourself, my life sucks. Have you ever felt like this? You know, we live in a world that is deeply interconnected and we are constantly being shown how big and how wonderful this world is. There's so much to see, there's so much to taste, there's so much to experience. We want to maximize what we get out of life. And so we want to invest in our homes, we want to invest in holidays and restaurants and fitness and relaxation and health regimes, celebrations and career. And we're plagued by, plagued by FOMO, the fear of missing out. We don't want to get to the end of our lives disappointed that we didn't get the best bang for our buck. Why? Because YOLO, you only live once. See, our culture is secular. There's no God, there's no meaning, there's no life beyond the grave. And so we must find our meaning right here in the horizontal. That's all there is. And the fruit is we can find ourselves running hard after as many different experiences in our life as we possibly can. Why? Because we don't want to miss out. Do you know what's wrong with this? 
Well, there's a couple of things wrong with it. Firstly, it just doesn't, YOLO doesn't work. Uh, Tim Keller, in his, his wonderful book uh, on death, he asks uh, us to imagine that you're at home when a masked man breaks into your house and he's going to kill you. And just imagine there's no way you can escape. But the masked man, the bandit says to you, look, I'm, I'm not a monster. What's something you enjoy? And you say, ah, oh, I don't know, chess. And so he says, all right, we'll play a game of chess and then I'll kill you. And the question he asks is, would you find satisfaction from that game of chess? It's crazy. Of course you wouldn't. It's meaningless. It's pointless. You're just about to die. Impending death robs everything of its meaning. And you know our culture? Deep down inside, we actually know that's true. We're all going to die. It's going to take away everything we love. And yet we try to suppress this truth constantly. We hide it, the thought of our death, deep down inside of us. It's the new unmentionable topic. It's not sex anymore. It's now death. We don't want to talk about it because intuitively we know it strips everything of its meaning. The second problem with YOLO is this. It is a lie. You will not only live once. With Christ, you will live forever. And this truth is the very heartbeat of our passage this morning, friends. Verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to himself. This is our glorious future, that we will go to be with Christ and be transformed to live eternally with him. And yet, here's a crucial question I want us to consider this morning. If eternally with Christ is our future, do we live with a real sense of longing for it. You know, recently was uh, reading something written by a pastor, Aussie pastor Ray Galea. And uh, he describes being at the funeral of the father of a young adult in his church. He's at this funeral, and the coffin is being lowered into the ground, and there's the new widow in tears saying the one word over and over again as her husband is lowered into the ground, anahasud, anahasud. He turns to an Arabic-speaking friend that's near him and says, what is she saying? Do you know what she's saying? I'm jealous, yes. I'm jealous, I'm jealous, I'm jealous of him. Why? Because she knew where her husband was going, to be with Christ. And she desperately wanted to be with him. Do we have that same deep sense of longing to be with Christ? In this week, as I've been preparing this, I've felt the Lord stirring me up with this fresh desire for Christ. You know, 
If I'm honest, my mind is often filled with a desire for many other things other than Christ. You know, thought of today being my last, you know, if I'm honest at times, it can be sort of this sense of disappointment. There's things I'd like to see. I'd like to see our church own our own building. I'd like to see many churches planted. I'd like to see our kids grow up. I'd I'd like to see grandkids. I'd, I'd like to travel and do the European thing with Shah. And yet Paul says in Philippians 1.23, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So here's the question. How can we get there? How can we have that same heart for eternity as the Apostle Paul, as that widow? Well, this message is an invitation for us to grow together in our desire for our home. And that's what we've entitled on the program, uh, this message, Zealous for Home. It's just a simple three-parter uh, message, this message. And as I was thinking about what to, what to share with you guys, you know, I, I thought well, maybe we could have this whole bunch of different things to do with this, like thinking about your money and all this different stuff and leave you with this whole bunch of to-dos. But I thought, no, no, that's not what I want to do. I, I, I sense the Lord wanted to just give us this fresh vision and a fresh desire for more of Christ, that God would rekindle our desire to be with Christ and that we would be all the more blessed for it. So let's dive in to our first point out of three this morning. Point number one, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. See, the truth is, any discussion of having a zeal for our true home must begin with understanding something of the owner of the home to which we're called. And Mark did such a wonderful job of uh, portraying this last night. Uh, by way of context, uh, in our passage, uh, it's the Apostle Paul writing, and it's before his conversion, uh, well, and lamenting about before his conversion on the Damascus Road. Now, on the Damascus Road, Paul was deeply confident Uh, in his standing with God. He was confident that God would welcome him uh, with open arms. Uh, Just prior to our passage, Paul had been outlining the basis of this confidence that he had, Uh, his spiritual resume, if if you were, before God. Uh, Verse 5, he talks about him being of top spiritual pedigree, how he was born into a Jewish family of the right tribe, how he lived in obedience to the Old Testament law. He was a religious conservative. He was highly educated and zealous to the extent of even persecuting Christians. And he sums up his thoughts with the following shocking statement. Read with me verse 7 of our passage. He says this, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss, Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. See, all the spiritual pedigree that Paul had achieved in the course of his life. All of the things that had previously shown him to be a good, upstanding citizen in the eyes of others. He now counts as loss as damages, as negatives. See, Paul is using accounting language here to try and help us understand the worth of Jesus. Just imagine uh, with me for a moment that you're an owner of a a small shop and you've got people coming into your store each and every day doing tap and go with their phone or with their card. 
tap, tap, tap. They tap every day, uh, all through the day, with their different purchases. And you check the balance sheet at the end of the day, and to your horror, you discover they've not been putting money into your account, but that each tap was, in fact, a withdrawal from your account. You thought these things were building your balance, building your business, but in fact, they were ruining you. It's exactly what Paul is saying. His birthright loss, his training loss, his education loss, his zeal loss, his obedience loss. Step further, for Jesus, he's lost everything and he counts them all as rubbish. That word rubbish is actually in Koine Greek a somewhat crude word, uh, translated as waste or excrement. The King James Version translates it as dung. In modern day English, perhaps the best word, if I can say it, is crap. How could these things be considered as dung? Now, aren't all these things that Paul is listening wonderful, God given gifts? Yes, yes they are. Birthright, religious education, passion, obedience, all good gifts. I mean, you could add so much more to that list. You could add property investments, volunteering, holidays, environmental activism, intentional parenting, successful career, anything you might use to gain approval in the eyes of God and others. Well, how then can Paul say all these things are like excrement? Well, the answer is in verse 8. Listen to this. In verse 8, because, because, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. See, all these things are good gifts in and of themselves. But when compared to knowing Christ, they are like dung. Because knowing Christ is far greater. None of these good gifts can do anything towards helping a person know Christ. And knowing Christ is of a worth that is infinitely beyond anything this world has to offer. Well, what does Paul mean by knowing Christ? Well, here's one thing. He's not just talking about intellectual knowledge, like knowing facts about Christ. This is about the intimate knowledge of a relationship. Verse 9, knowing means to be found by God and joined to Christ. It means to be clothed in His righteousness, dressed in the gown of His perfect obedience to God through faith in Him. Verse 10, knowing Christ is compared with knowing the power of His resurrection, that is intimately being familiar with the work of the Holy Spirit and being molded and shaped by Him to be like Christ. Verse 10, it means knowing Christ is to share in His sufferings. It's to fellowship. It's to partner in His sufferings. It's to so identify with Christ that we experience rejection and suffering just like He did. And knowing Christ is to become Him in His death to take up our cross and follow him. And Paul is saying that the Lord Jesus is so glorious that even good gifts from God are like excrement, are like rubbish, are like dung when compared to knowing him. I love this quote from J.R. Packer in his book, Knowing God. He says this, of this passage, he says, when Paul says he counts the things he lost rubbish or dung, he means not merely that he does not think of them as having any value, 
but also that he does not live with them constantly in his mind. What normal person spends his time nostalgically dreaming of manure? (laughs) Yet this, in effect, is what many of us do. It shows how little we have in the way of true knowledge of God. Isn't that so true? That that just hurts my heart to, to think about that. Nostalgically dreaming of manure. Dreaming of things that are like dung when compared to knowing Christ. Now, this shouldn't lead us to self-flagellation, but to remember the privilege of knowing Christ, to release us from being burdened by these things. They don't matter. We have Christ. See, we won't have an appropriate zeal for our heavenly home unless we understand the value of the one who dwells there. Nothing compares to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. But secondly, we also need to consider in our second point the mindset of maturity. See, I hope God is already starting to stir something in us this morning together, a sense of a zeal for the Lord, a sense of a desire to know Him and to be with Him. But Paul has a specific application of what he wants the Philippians to do with this knowledge. Verse 15. Let's, let's read it just briefly. Paul says, verse 15, Let those of us who are mature think this way. There is a way of thinking. There's a mindset he wants them to adopt. A way of thinking that is the mark of those who are mature followers of our Lord Jesus. What is this way of thinking they are to have? Well, we Read it just above in verses 12 through to 14. Paul says, Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul has a laser sharp, a single-minded focus on one thing, and that is being with Christ. This is his mindset. And to help explain what this mindset is, he uses the image of an athlete running in a race. I think it's worth just pausing to note that he does, in fact, use the image of someone running and not cycling. Uh, it's a bit of a wrong in-joke, uh, Matt Meeks. I thought you'd appreciate that, brother. Listen to what he says twice. He says, I press on. Uh, it's actually a word that is used earlier to describe his persecuting of the church. It's now applied to his following or his pursuing persecuting of more of Christ. It's zeal redirected. He says, Forgetting what's behind. You'll never see a sprinter run while staring at the start line of the race. They might glance sideways or glance behind them, but they're single-minded in their vision. It's to the end. It's to the goal. Straining forward. That word means to exert oneself to the utmost, to be stretching, to be straining forward. Uh, Looking at a sprinter's face in a race, and you'll see all their energy, all their muscles is poured into into this task. They're giving it everything. And what's at the end of this race? There's a goal. There's a target. 
There's a finish line and a prize and a reward. And what is this reward? It's upward. It's heavenly. It's the heavenly summons of God in Christ Jesus. You know, many of you uh, at Warunga will know a Froy uh, who spent the past year training for a marathon. And it was a massive effort, uh, an effort in regards to training. Uh, he was running at peak uh, over 100 kilometers a week uh, towards the end, a huge sacrifice of time and energy. It affected his diet. You can't run that much without eating like an absolute beast. And, and given the price of food at the moment, that's a huge cost burden as well. <laughs> Um, and the prize, the beautiful prize, he ran a uh, pace just over 4 minutes 30 per kilometer for all those 42Ks at the Gold Coast Marathon. Amazing achievement. Amazing example of single-minded fo- uh, focus to achieve a wonderful goal. See, successful athletes, what do they do? They discipline their bodies. They live by strict regimes. Everything is weighed according to whether it will help or hinder them in their victory, in their goal. And just as an athlete is single-minded in focus on winning their race, Christians are to be single-minded in their focus on being with Christ. At verse 17, Paul even says, if you want to know what this should look like, make others like me your training partners. Follow us as we follow Jesus. Now, you might be sitting here and thinking, hold up, Brendan. Man, this seems all a bit full-on. It's a bit much. I mean... Why is it necessary to be so focused? Can't we just kind of relax a little bit? Like, just chill out a little bit? Well, Paul goes on to explain the reason why having this single-minded focus is so important, so crucial. We read it in the very next two verses. He says this. This is the reason why. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Paul's so deeply grieved by the plight of these people. As he shares, he's, he's crying. Tears are running down his face. Well, what is the fundamental problem with these, belly, uh, with these people? It's verse 19, it says, their God is their belly. Now, you might read that and say, well, that's not my problem. But to actually understand it, that word in Greek refers to, actually in their way of thinking, the seat of your inward life, Uh, your desires, your feelings. Better in our context is to say their God is their what? Their God is their heart. They worship and follow their own personal fulfillment. Their focus, their mindset is not on being with Christ. It's on the things of this earth. The kids. Career. Education. Relationship. Spouse. Investments. Holiday and travel. Property and renovations. Exercise and health. They're all really good things. But they're not God things. You know, once upon a time, their gaze might have been focused on being with Christ, longing like that widow for, for more of Him. And yet it's shifted slowly, imperceptibly towards other things. No longer is all their energy, their time, their talents, their treasure straining towards the goal of Christ. 
other things have taken priority. Just a season. Yet their heart is becoming more resistant to Jesus. As the weeds have grown up, begin to strangle this plant. See, Paul has a sobering assessment of them in verse 18. He describes them as enemies of the cross. Their lifestyle is opposed to the call of the cross. What is the call of our Lord Jesus? Not follow your heart, but deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. John Piper puts it so eloquently in his wonderful book, A Hunger for God. He says this, The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. That's a sobering quote, isn't it? Endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's so easy to shipwreck your faith by allowing your gaze to slip from Christ. Dave has a quote he loves to say, The devil has a perfect plan for your life to make you unhappy and unfruitful as a Christian. See, nothing will quite dampen our passion for God like allowing our gaze to shift from a singular focus on more of Christ and less of the things of this world. Here's a question. Here's a, here's a sobering question for us to consider. I hope you don't mind me asking. As you look back on your day, on your week, on your month, on your year, what have you set your mind on? Have you ruthlessly sought to set it on being with Christ? Like an athlete running a race? Or has it slipped? What if I just press you a little bit further? How about as you think over your budget? How about as you consider career aspirations, your priorities for the year? Do you have a single-minded goal to make more of the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, as I was preparing for this message and reading this week, I, I stumbled across this wonderful story about the world's fastest blind sprinter. As this man called David Brown, and he can run 100 meters in 10.5 seconds. He's been blind since the day of his birth. And he has this incredible running guide, a running partner who every race he runs alongside with. Uh, his partner is he's named Jerome Avery, and he's a former U.S. national champion sprinter himself. And Jerome, as I was reading, says, says this. He, he's, he describes what it should look like. He says, our arm actions should be exact. We should hit the ground at the same time. Did you see us running? It should look like one person running. And then David Brown describes it this way. His experience of running with Jerome is so wonderful. I just want you to catch it. He says this. I don't have to worry about going out too far. All I have to do, listen to this, is keep listening to him. Isn't that beautiful? This is exactly the picture of how we run our race. It looks like just one person running, but it's not. He runs with you. And as we run, we have one simple task. 
our eyes fixed firmly on our eternal home and listening to his voice. That this is the mindset of the mature, a single-minded focus on having more of Christ in our lives. Well, finally, we turn to our last point for our time together, not just this mindset of the mature, but lastly, the joyful wait. You know, if we would be like that faithful widow longing to be with Christ, we must understand something of the glorious future that awaits us. See, heaven to most people is kind of like this weird, vague form of non-physical existence. It's like the Philadelphia cheese ad. I don't know if you got that in the States, Mark, but here, out here it's really weird. There's just people playing harps in the clouds, uh, floating around like spirits, ghostly, lots of singing in clouds, and just it's, it's all kind of bizarre. Uh, in fact, there was a series I used to enjoy watching called The Good Place. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. Uh, the Good Place actually in this series is so good that it's actually not good because it's dull and uninteresting. And actually, after a period of time, people actually want to check out of The Good Place uh, because it's just not that great. And I think that's how we tend to think about what heaven is like. And yet this is nothing at all like the picture of heaven in the Bible. See, in the Bible, heaven will be physical. And the template for how it will look to us, the resurrection of Jesus. Read again those verses in verse 20 and 21. Paul, Paul writes this. He says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Friends, our citizenship is not here. We were made for a person and a place, and that person is Jesus, and that place is heaven. This life, this country, this world, it will never be our home. Because that kingdom is our home. And one day he's going to come and completely transform our broken bodies to be like him. You know, some of us sitting here, you know, like myself, you might not yet feel the weight of this truth because you're still young. You know, for many of us, we're in that kind of small window in our lives where health and personal brokenness, they don't seem yet to be a really great big challenge. And we can live with this sense of denial, this belief that we can avoid frailty and that death is a distant concern. Yeah, it's true. Modern medicine has dramatically extended our life expectancy, about 30 years over the last 100 years, to be 84 years of age in Australia. And yet here's the truth. Nothing, no modern medicine or pandemic or war has changed the death rate. It still remains at 100%. One out of every one person will die. You know, I'm only 38, right? And I'm in very good health. And yet I've already started noticing some changes. I mean, obvious, you know, low-hanging fruit, gray hair. You guys can see that. Um, I don't recover like I used to. I'm getting a little bit pudgy. And here's one thing you guys will enjoy hearing. I've noticed recently I am starting to make old man noises all the time. I go pick something up. All the time. I catch myself doing it all the time. The truth is, all of us 
are constantly dying. We're fading away. Paul describes in verse 21 our bodies as being lowly bodies. Uh, you could translate that woodenly as being something like the body of our humility. See, as we age, we're confronted with our limited nature, that we are mortal, that we will die, that we cannot live forever, and this is humbling. As we age, we lose our independence, and that's further humbling. See, modern medicine means a greater percentage of us will spend a greater percentage of our times living with frailty. And for some of us here today, this brokenness, it's not hypothetical. It is your present reality. The chronic pain, chronic disease, disability, loss, a constant reminder every morning of your physical brokenness. More than that, we all feel our brokenness in our struggles with our own sinful flesh and our repeated failures. See, whether personal brokenness is a future reality or a lived experience, we have a glorious hope. And that is that our future is tied to the resurrection of Jesus. You know, we heard this read last night, and I just wanted to read it again for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, Paul says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, then he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. See, God sent his precious son to rescue us from our sins. He was killed and he was dead. He was buried in that tomb for three days. He lay there stone cold dead. But he was raised back to life again. But he wasn't simply raised back to exactly as he was before. He was radically transformed to a glorious new reality. God had many purposes in the raising of Jesus from the dead. But one of them is to give us a foretaste of our glorious new future. The Lord Jesus himself described it this way. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies... It remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And Jesus is saying that his death will be like bearing a grain, a, a seed of wheat. And it will produce a new creation, something far more glorious than the seed was before. See, a seed, it kind of undergoes a symbolic kind of death as it's buried in the earth. And that death is necessary to produce spectacular new life. And Paul, reflecting on these words, goes on to say the following in 1 Corinthians 15, 42. He says, So it is with the re resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural that is connected to Adam body. It is raised a spiritual that is connected to Christ's body. If there is a connected to Adam body, there is also a connected to Christ's body. See, Jesus wasn't simply raised from the dead, but transformed to a glorious new reality. He could eat and drink with his friends. Yet he could also pass through walls and vanish and reappear on command. He wasn't immediately 
recognizable to his friends. It was like, you know, when you see an old childhood friend after many, many years, and now they're all grown up, and, and they say, do you remember me? And you look at them and pause, and after a moment you say, oh, yes, I do. Yes, that is you. You know, C.S. Lewis describes what we will appear like in our resurrection bodies, that we will say to one another, I always knew you could be this wonderful. And yet the real glory, the real glory is we'll be able to worship and love and serve Jesus perfectly with our bodies. Do you realize that this is a picture of your future? It's amazingly glorious. Here's a wonderful quote from the famous English poet George Herbert. He describes it this way. He says, death used to be an executioner. But the gospel makes him a gardener. Did you catch that? Death used to be an executioner, but the gospel makes him a gardener. Death used to be able to crush us, and now it can only plant us in the soil of God's garden, ready to be transformed into something incredible. Listen to this from C.S. Lewis. This is such a beautiful picture of the things we are talking about. He says it this way. He says, These small and perishable bodies we now have were given to us as ponies given to schoolboys. We must learn to manage, not that we may someday be free of horses altogether, but that someday we may ride, bareback, confident and rejoicing, those great amounts, those winged, shining and world-shaking horses, which perhaps even now expect us with impatience, pouring and snorting at the king's stables. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the glory that awaits us? Our lives in so many ways are a preparation for a far more glorious future reality that awaits us with Christ. These are our training wheels. We've been entrusted with little, prepared to be entrusted with much. This is a tent. What awaits us is a glorious building. Isn't that good news? Doesn't that make your heart beat a little faster and long for that day? And that day is coming. Let me read that passage from Philippians chapter 2 once more that we read earlier today. It says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the God the Father. You know, God is bringing the day when his kingdom will fully come on earth as it is in heaven. You know, I like to imagine that day as coming like a tsunami, like a wave across the face of the earth where people, one after the other, will just suddenly drop to their knee and bow and worship before him. Drop to their knee, drop to their knee, drop to their knee, spreading out across the entirety of the earth. Maranatha, cried the early Christians, come Lord Jesus, hasten the day when every knee will bow before your throne. You know, I just wanted to close with uh, the words of uh, someone who recently passed, uh, Tim Keller. Uh, he was very beloved to me. I, I never had the chance to meet him, but I felt like I knew him because I've listened to practically every sermon he's ever given, uh, read nearly every book he's ever written, and uh, I really felt his death. And, and there was an interview he gave about two years ago when he'd recently been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, uh, which took him uh, in May this year, or the Lord took him in May this year, where he talked about uh, his diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. I want to leave us with this as we end our time and I pray, because uh, it really affected me so much in thinking about my own life. He says this, 
He says, Kathy and I realized that the cancer thing had really shaken us. I found I was always resting, frankly, in ministry accomplishments, ministry goals. Hey, we've done this. We got this started. We moved to that. And we realized that in many ways, we were resting our hearts in these things. In other words, we were really trying to turn this world into heaven. We were trying to make a heaven out of the earth. And as a result of that, we were always unhappy. I was never enjoying my day because I was always thinking about tomorrow and all the stuff I have to get done. What's happened with the cancer is suddenly we've seen that we can't make this earth heaven because it's going to be taken from us. And it just jolts you so much. You say, I've got to make heaven my heaven and God my heaven. And here's what's really weird. When you actually make heaven heaven, the joys of the earth are more poignant than they used to be. That's what's so strange. We enjoy our day more than we ever did. We look out on water here, the East River, for example, and there's a whole lot of things that we never really enjoyed that much. The more we make heaven into the real heaven, the more this world becomes something we actually are enjoying for its own sake, instead of trying to make it give us more than it really can. So oddly enough, we've never been happier today. We've never enjoyed our days more. We've never enjoyed hugs more. We've never enjoyed food more. Kathy will always say, well, this would be great to make. We've never enjoyed walks more. We've never enjoyed the actual things that we see, touch, taste, hear, and smell around us more. It's almost like, why? What was the matter with us? And the answer is, we got our hearts off those things. The Lord Jesus is coming. and Would that truth help us to live this day in light of that day? Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the beautiful gift of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. Lord, we come before your throne and we recognize our gaze so easily slips from the glorious prize we have in you. Lord, help us to run like that sprinter, Dan Brown, firmly fixed on the task before us, running as one with you, listening to your voice. Would you help us see the glorious future we have in Christ and long for it evermore with every passing day. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.